And I think today you have a generation of artists that is trying to provoke the current societal changes that we are experiencing of transitioning from a physical world to a digital world in a lot of in a lot of contexts. So for me, I think that's that's the manifestation that these artists are questioning uh, what does digitalization mean for us as a society. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Well, hello folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, I am back in person with my colleague and friend, Professor Dries Fahms. We are hosting another one of our inspiration sessions where we talk about things that made us learn, that made us think, and of course, that made us laugh. Today we're coming to you from uh, a hotel room in Dusseldorf where I was just down uh, supporting Dries and uh, talking to one of his classes. And this is always a wonderful opportunity for us to have these conversations in a more spirited way, face to face. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Dries, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Now I'm on your turf, technically, after you were on mine last time in Berlin. It's true. Welcome to Dusseldorf. <laughs> I think we've done one of these before. Yes, uh, true. Also, I it's think it was true. my hotel room at a different hotel last time. Yes. Um, but now we're in the cozy quarters of the, the 25 hours and enjoying a, a rainy evening in, in Dusseldorf. So I think without further ado, um, I'm looking forward to having this conversation because I think we have some thought-provoking topics and perhaps some current and timely ones as well that uh, I think should incite some interesting discourse. So why don't you kick things off as usual, Dries, and uh, let's start with you talking about something that made you learn. Yes. Um, yeah, as always, let me start with something that made me learn. Um, and actually, I've been spending some time in the past weeks to look at how can we measure personalities of people? So this is actually an important topic for research because in a lot of research, if you especially look at the individual level, you want to be at least able to control for some personality characteristics of people. Now, how do we traditionally do that? Quite straightforward. We sent out surveys to individuals with some kind of established items to measure certain personality characteristics but of course that that approach has a lot of limitations are you talking kind of like the myers-briggs type exactly mm. exactly the famous myers-briggs <laughs> which is quite funny because everybody is using it but as we all know <laughs> it's complete bullshit totally totally debunked <laughs> right yeah so uh, there has been a 
plenty of proof that that uh, item scale doesn't work, but still we are using it. So there is a kind of urgent need to, to find alternatives. And actually, um, so by delving a bit into the literature, what I noticed is that nowadays uh, researchers, but also practitioners, are starting to use an alternative approach, which is called uh, digital footprints. And so what does it mean? Actually, we all are active on the internet using a wide variety of social media platforms. And that means that all of us leave a digital footprint behind. We are liking certain stuff. We are commenting on LinkedIn. We are posting on Twitter. And so in that way, all of us is creating or we are all creating a digital footprint. And so researchers have actually started to use that information, so digital footprints of people, to actually kind of predict their personality. Uh, on the dark side, we all know the Cambridge Analytics scandal, but so also researchers have been doing quite some research on that. And quite an important paper uh, that has been working on this topic is the paper from uh, Yu Kosinski and Still, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy, Academy of Science, a very prominent journal. And this paper was actually already published in 2015, so a bit older. And I will not say the title yet because that would kind of uh, give the story away. <laughs> so let me not yet tell the title of the paper. But so this paper wanted to find out, can we actually use the digital footprint of individuals to predict their personality? And to what extent is the predictive power of your digital footprint better or worse than uh, your friends? So can we train a model that is better able to predict your personality than your friends? So what did they do? They actually collected data of more than 70,000 individuals. And so these 70,000 individuals, they all first had to fill in for themselves a survey about their personality. So they had to... And not the Brick Myers, a more validated uh, kind of survey scale with more than 100 items. And based on the 100 items, the scholars could determine your personality. And for these people, they collected Facebook data. More specifically, they collected data on which kind of post on Facebook you liked. So they just collected data on the likes you gave to certain posts. And based on that information, they trained a model. And so the independent variable were your Facebook likes, and the dependent variable was your personality based on the survey. And they trained an AI model that in the end used your likes to predict your personality. Next step, they actually asked from 10,000 of these 7,000 people, they asked friends or even spouses to also fill in the survey but not about themselves, but about that person. And so they said, okay, uh, are you willing to kind of fill in the survey for this person so that you would actually kind of evaluate the personality of that person? And so then they checked, are your friends and spouses better able to predict your personality or is our trained model better able to predict it? And so what did they find out? And then we also come to the title of the paper, Actually, the trained model using the Facebook likes is more accurate in predicting your personality than your friends and spouses. And just to give you one very interesting number in the paper. So what they concluded was that on average, they need to collect 300 Facebook likes 
And if they have 300 Facebook likes of you, they are better able to predict your personality than your wife or husband. Huh. So at the moment that they have 300 Facebook likes of you, their prediction is better than the prediction of your personality than your wife and husband. Wow. So that's, I think maybe quite scary or quite, quite interesting, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. But then they even went one step further. So now they had actually three data points. Yeah? So you have evaluated yourself, mm -hmm. they have your digital footprint, and they have the evaluation of your friends and spouses. Mm -hmm. And so then they wanted to know which of these three data points is best able in predicting certain outcomes. Like your likelihood to get depressed, your likelihood to feel satisfied with your life, the likelihood that you use substances like alcohol and drugs. What, what do you think was the worst predictor of the three? Probably yourself would be my guess. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> the spouse? The spouse? The spouses were the worst. Yeah. Second was the model, and for most, was accurate. Were, uh, was your own uh, your own estimation was most accurate? But there were some exceptions. For instance, predicting the use of substances uh, like alcohol or drugs. Actually, the Facebook model was more accurate. Mm. So the accuracy of prediction of the Facebook model was better than the person. Uh, but so you see that actually today we can use much more advanced models to actually predict the um, personality of uh, individuals and actually uh, so this is research done at the university of cambridge eh? so not a shitty school it's a, a very prominent school and they actually have developed now a tool and it's called the magic sauce so on the internet if you type in magic sauce university of cambridge you will go to the website and so there they offer you the service you can just upload some Twitter and LinkedIn data, and then you will get your personality profile based on the, uh, mm -hmm. the data that you provide. And again, you could say, oh, this is a bit scary, but uh, it's also, of course, quite informative to see based on the data that you upload, which kind of profile you get. Super interesting. Like, really, really interesting. I, a couple, I have a question, but then I have a, a comment. Yeah. I, if they're assessing your personality traits, are they using kind of what a lot of other kind of personality tests use, which are the big five? Oh, it's, it's a kind of big five, but um, nowadays, often if you use in research big five, it will be based like on 20 items or stuff like that. But in this case, they use 100 items to measure the big five. To measure, but it's still measuring it's the, the big, big five, yeah. So that makes sense because if you, Generally, the big five can be pretty good at predicting life outcomes in yeah. some ways, depression or substance abuse or, or things like that. What I find interesting is how they got to them through these social posts, right? So when you said Twitter, for example, that that resonated with me because it's self-selecting. You're actually sending a message that you choose to send out into the world, right? Mm -hmm. You can use NLP. Through NLP, you can not only understand context of words, but maybe you can understand meaning and emotion behind them. So mm -hmm. I can see that being a very powerful input. Facebook likes seems problematic to me. One is you have Facebook's algorithm so you are not in control of even what you see, 
right? It's making assumptions based on what it thinks of you and it's pushing you particular content. And then it also doesn't know, I assume it doesn't know the context, mm -hmm. the why, right? And, and I think of, I, I don't use Facebook anymore, but on Instagram, for example, like I'll like a friend's post because they're my friend, yeah. not because I necessarily connect with the content. Like I have friends that post about football. Mm. I'm not particularly a football fan, but if they, they're so passionate about it that if they post, like I'll like it yeah. because I'm supporting them. Yeah. I'm not supporting their ideology or their, their particular values. And to me, liking or not liking is binary, right? Yeah. It's on off, it's mm. one ones and zeros. So that is a very, small snapshot into what could be a richer picture, right? So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this AI is looking at other things or demographics or uh, looking at networks and things of that sort. But like I said, I think the Twitter piece yeah. could be pretty easy, but the other part seems to have room for error. Yeah, and so I think the, the, the original paper I said is, is from 2015. And so there they only used the Facebook likes at the digital footprint. And so you see now in the tool that they have developed and that's available nowadays, they use different social media. So there you can upload uh, your Facebook, also your LinkedIn post and your Twitter posts. So it's clear that today they have trained a more complex model using different social media to again, exactly address the limitations that you were pointing at. Well, I feel comfortable as soon as they connect TikTok, you're going to know everything about people. <laughs> nah, I tend, to, I tend to question that. I will come back to that later on. I'm not that convinced about the TikTok algorithm, to be honest, but that's another topic for later. I, I find it, the, the other thing I think that's interesting is, you know, one of the things, and I've taken the, I actually had to take the Myers-Briggs. We did a team building workshop a while back and I was like, you got to be, you got to be kidding me. You're really using this like antiquated piece of piece of junk, but, but I have done it a number of times and almost every time I've taken it, I ended up in a different category. Okay. And I think that's one of the failures of these types of models, right? Mm -hmm. Is again, they take a snapshot in time mm -hmm. and the way you are feeling or interpreting yourself or the world around you is variable depending on mood, depending on life circumstances and, and, and things of that sort. So, um, I always, to me, I think I could give a personality test to my sibling or someone really dear to me that has known me really well. And they could probably do a more accurate assessment of me than I could probably do myself because I'm looking at it through the lens of the now. Yeah. You know, and it's very hard to separate yourself and look at yourself objectively to answer some of those questions. Yeah, and I think that, again, if you go from a research perspective, that's a big challenge we always have is the distinction between states and traits. States and traits. Yeah. So in the end, almost always, if you're measuring, you're measuring a state, whereas you would actually want to measure the trait. And that, that remains a big challenge. And in that way, I think these digital footprints are very interesting because at least there you are collecting data points over a longer period of time. So you're a bit kind of capturing that trade effect more than the state effect. So what do you think? How well do you think China knows their their <laughs> citizens? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's I, you you can't help but imagine that if Cambridge can do this in a in a project in you know one department in a lab that the graphs that, you know, governments and larger agencies could be even richer and more sophisticated with all of the data points. 
Yeah, and it's, it's of course what Cambridge Analytica exactly did. And it's it's a bit confusing that you have Cambridge in both words. And I think they're totally not related. But yeah, we know from that scandal that that's exactly what they did. Not They used Facebook data to get very strong profiles of people. And then they would send them the content that would tick with your personality. And so there is definitely a potential dark side there. At the same time, we I think... I think respecting certain ethical boundaries and certain ethical rules, I think these methods can be very valuable. So I, I would not be in favor of completely saying, oh, it's by definition unethical and we should ignore this. I think if you have clear rules of the game, like we also have for other kind of ethical experiments, then I think it can be very valuable data. So in, if you go to the website of Cambridge, they say, look, you can upload the data. We will not store them. Uh, it's just for your information. So there are clear kind of GDPR privacy rules. And I think under that kind of conditions, it's for me quite acceptable. I think it becomes a bit more a gray zone. Uh, imagine that you um, go to a new employer and they would say on day one, yeah, we would really like you to, to upload your Twitter and Facebook on this Cambridge Analytics. <laughs> I would feel quite uncomfortable that my employer would get a very rich understanding of my personality. But it's my understanding that a lot of recruiters are already doing that, right? They're looking at public social media profiles, yeah. especially for higher profile jobs or jobs with security challenges. Like they're going to check your tweets and, you know, make sure you didn't say something problematic. I mean, my goodness, the amount of people getting canceled for tweets that they wrote a decade ago. Um, seems to be on the rise, yeah. you know. So there is that public record that exists out there, at least in in some spheres. So, but it does to me beg the question: is like who knows who knows your personality better, you, your spouse, <laughs> or the CIA? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Part of me, maybe it's the latter that actually knows the most because it has the ability to process the most information. You know. Cool. Good topic. Good topic. Interesting. I think. I am not going to play with that tool. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to beg away from it. I was really tempted to upload my data. I didn't do it yet, but I was tempted, I have to say. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to talk about a topic that um, I hear a lot, more than I wish I did. And it's, it's an adage that I hear in the entrepreneurial world way too much that Frankly, it makes me feel like I'm throwing up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> and I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it from respectable people as well. But that adage is, fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. I hate fake it till you make it. When I hear it, the first thing that pops into my head is wantrepreneur. <laughs> because I think any, so, any person that's actually been through the the journey and the grind at least once, if not multiple times, understands the importance of relationships and integrity and trust to building things of, of value. So when I hear it, it, it kind of makes me laugh and cry at the same time. It, it reminds me of how much like entrepreneurial education and learning is kind of gleaned from popular media. Mm -hmm. You know, and through this rah-rah, hustle porn, memification <laughs> yeah. of entrepreneurship rather than, you know, learning from kind of authentic guidance and mentorship, you know, that I think good entrepreneurs go out and look for. 
So the reason I, I decided to kind of look at this topic is I recently have spent a good bit of time with an entrepreneur that kind of made this mantra, like the statement kind of his core mantra, okay. you know, and in some ways almost a, a strategy to building his own business. You know, he said it to his staff all the time. He practiced it, you know, among prospective investors. You know, he really kind of played the game. He, he kind of bullshitted and acted upon it with prospective clients. And the reason that I decided to, to talk about this is just the other day I saw he was on a podcast and he f did it so full on in that podcast, so so littered with lies and untruths that it just triggered the dozen times I heard him say, fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. And it just made me kind of want to unpack it a little bit more because especially after that podcast came out, I, you know, I know some people on his team and you could tell that he had lost trust that it was kind of that that mantra and that ethos was had become a roadblock that was going to inhibit his growth, if not eventually kill his business and perhaps worse, kill his reputation, mm. which, you know, as we all know, entrepreneurship is something you get better at over time. So the relationships you have and the, the trust that you build in each journey, you know, compounds each way down. So it made me decide I wanted to kind of unpack what fake it till you make it actually means and what components of it are something really worth taking note. So I started looking around and I actually um, took a piece from your playbook, Therese, and I found a really interesting journal article okay. that came out uh, quite recently in 2022. Um, and it was in the journal Business Horizons, and it was written by Wood, Sheaf, and Dwyer. And it was called Fake It Till You Make It, Hazards of a Cultural Norm in Entrepreneurship. Okay. And then I looked at some popular media articles, a few blog, medium posts, some people that were kind of talking about it from a practical perspective. And I just kind of summarized what what it means and what to kind of look out for and, and why it even exists. So what does fake it till you make it mean? Um, you know, essentially the definition means to consciously cultivate an attitude, feeling, or perception of com competence that you don't currently have by pretending you do until it becomes true. So it's sort of an overlap between emotion, perception, and competence, mm -hmm. right? In general, the idea is to fake one of those three things until you gain the benefits of actually having it, right? So you're kind of postponing buying yourself time with the bullshit until you have the ability to accrue whatever skill or status that might be. Now, I think we all understand that entrepreneurs can be masters of expanding the boundaries of truth and reality. You know, what comes to mind always is Steve Jobs' reality distortion field, yeah. you know, and he basically insisted on being able to do something until, by God, he found a way to do it or to found someone else who found a way to do it. Um, but with these kind of distortion fields, as with anything, there is a boundary that takes it too far. The biggest risk 
is crossing that boundary and committing fraud, mm. right? Which now you start dealing with legal legal issues, not just ethical ones. So when deception spins out of control and this kind of gap between fact and fiction becomes too difficult to overcome, faking it and the ability to make it ends up ceasing to exist, right? You mm. no longer have the ability to, to make it anymore. This comes down to three components of deception, which I thought was really interesting. The first one is controllable versus uncontrollable elements. So what is within your control and what is outside of your control? So, you know, does the entrepreneur have control over the actions required to fill this fact fiction gap? Mm. That means like fixing a business model gap is controllable. Mm. Convincing investors to give you millions of dollars is not. So if you say, hey, we've got this elegant business model, but you haven't figured it out yet, you still may have the ability through that time you bought yourself to fix it. But if you go around telling people, hey, I've raised 50 million bucks, that's out of your control. You're prob there's a good chance you're not gonna have the time to fix that. So mm -hmm. understanding what is controllable and what isn't. You know? If it's controllable, one could argue you can expand that boundary of faking it. If it's out of your control, probably gonna bite you in the ass and, and get caught. The next piece is Soul action versus collective action. So soul entrepreneurial action versus collective. So, um, for example, can the divide be bridged by the entrepreneur solely, or does it require a collective mm -hmm. to, to bridge that divide? So if an entrepreneur can spend the weekend fixing a bug, great. Um, that's a lot easier than if they have to rebuild an entire tech stack, right? So a person flub the truth a little bit, spend a long weekend, hack away, solve a problem. But if it's something catastrophic that requires a whole bunch of other people, guess what? Chances are you're going to be exposed and you're not going to make it. The third and the final piece is limited versus extensive stakeholder interaction. So how involved is the entrepreneur with the stakeholders that they faked it, faked it with, right? If they only engage with them occasionally, it's possible to fake it a little bit. If they have regular interaction and engagement, chances are they're going to get exposed and end up not making it in the end. Now, this may sound a little bit like, here's when it's okay to fake it till you make it, and here's where it's not. I am by no means suggesting that, but I think in reality, we all understand that entrepreneurs are storytellers. Mm -hmm. Now, storytelling is about the grandeur and grandiosity and you know, compelling and engaging narratives. And sometimes that involves using colorful language or bigger, bolder stories. There is a fine line in where that goes too far. Right. And that's why I thought kind of unpacking what seemed like the obvious of like what is going too far and faking it till you make it yeah. is is important because I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in storytelling. And I think we've all done it before. Right. Mm -hmm. We're telling a story of our past or something crazy that happened to us. And we unconsciously make these small embellishments. And in most cases, they're, they're not harmful. But in some cases, particularly if you're asking someone for money or you're investing their money, or you know, there's legal or liability implications on the table, even a slight deviation mm -hmm. from 
objective truth can be really problematic. So I like what these, these, uh, these authors said, it's, which is uh, what to do instead of faking it till okay. you make it. Um, one is fake it till you practice it. So there's a difference between faking it and practicing, right? Reframing behavior as I'm working to overcome, to become the person that you want to become is a nice way to do it. Continuing to practice until new habits become, a more, natu become more natural is kind of one way of making it, right? So yeah. instead of like, you know, throwing the bullshit in the equation, and I think this is something we actually talk to founders about all the time. Like one of the best things you could tell a prospective investor is, I don't know, or I haven't learned how to do that, yeah. but I'm working on it yeah. and I'm working on it every day. That authenticity and that momentum forward is much more powerful sometimes than even saying, I got it all figured out, yeah. you know? Winging it is the next one. So figuring it out on the fly. Essentially, so psychologist the psychologist Lev Vygotsky, sorry if I butchered that name, describes the concept of scaffolding, mm. and that's uh, that's where we develop new skills. We learn most successfully when those skills are just beyond what we're capable of and what we know. He referred to this kind of area b beyond our capabilities as proximal development, the zone of proximal development. If you're in that zone learning something new, you're being kind of authentic about where you still need to develop. You're admitting that you don't know it all, and in the end that provides an air of confidence. So it's not only building trust by saying, I don't know something, but it's saying, hey, I'm, I'm pushing myself beyond my comfort zone. So that's also sending a message that, hey, I'm also confident that I'm gonna figure this out and I'm gonna do painful, difficult things because I believe in myself to kind of solve that problem. Yeah. And then the last piece is asking for help. Sounds so damn obvious, but so many founders get stuck in this cycle of, I got my shit together, I'm the boss, I have all the answers, instead of saying, hey, I need help with something. And I think there's a lot of startup programs that you know, try to create that infrastructure, give you mentorship, give you guidance, but there is still this strong mentality of, I'm the boss, I need to have all the answers, right? So good entrepreneurs, they need to be clear about their limitations, ask for guidance. You know, it may seem counterintuitive, but like a lot of research says that people that ask for help with a challenging task are perceived as more competent and effective than people that don't. So if you say, I haven't solved this, I'm asking you for help because I don't know the answer, those people will often perceive you as being more competent and being more effective than someone that doesn't. So there are some kind of counterintuitive concepts within this, no. but I found it such an interesting learning perspective to take this phrase that I heard, hear so often and start to understand what exactly it means, what are the boundaries of it, with the small glimmer of hope that people will just shut the fuck up and start stop saying this stupid <laughs> message because it makes them look like idiots, yeah. right? And it really, really ruins the credibility. And to be fair, like I hear it the most from young people. Yeah, no, and, and let me maybe touch upon that because I'm teaching these people all the time. 
And so what I see is uh, when I ask them to prepare a pitch or whatever, they, you see that they always try to come over as being very confident. Mm -hmm. And in one way or another, they always think that that's a good thing. And I really try to make them clear that actually showing some vulnerability is, is much more attractive to mentors, to investors, because then they might also get the feeling I can really help these people. And, and I think it also gives you much more authenticity if you're willing to show some vulnerability. So I, I really have a feeling, and I, I even have a feeling that it gets stronger and stronger, that I think sometimes students or, or whoever they are, they, they actually feel quite insecure. And as a kind of reaction, they overdo it in terms of showing confidence. Whereas I tell them, no, don't do this. Show your vulnerability. Show that some of your experiments went wrong. Admit that some things you don't know, and actually that will resonate with the mentors and the jury members and the investors. Um, but that's really something that you have to emphasize, and it doesn't come natural to them. It, I love that you brought up vulnerability because mm. I think that is such a core piece. And you know, I remember a time in my life when I was maybe practicing a little bit of that "fake it till you make it," mm. and it was a time where I was the most overworked, the most stressed closest to burnout and as a result that created imposter syndrome and insecurities and it did it prevented me from letting people in and kind of being vulnerable and interestingly this this founder that I've been working with that I had this you know that inspired me to talk about this way overworked mm -hmm. crazy stressed out over overextended and I sat him down a while ago and I said look I was like, I've been you. I've been in your shoes. I know exactly what you're going through. I said, you're stressed out. You're worried your business is going to fail. You're working crazy long hours. You're not delegating. You're jumping in, trying to make everything perfect according to your own standards. And frankly, because of it, you're being kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, but I don't think you're a dick. Mm. I don't think you're an ass. I just think all of this emotion and stress and anxiety is overwhelming you. And I, and I said, if you want to solve this problem, talk to your staff and tell them that you're struggling, mm. you're stressed, you're overworked, you haven't had free time to yourself, this is consuming you. And by creating that layer of, you know, that, that aura of transparency and vulnerability and humanity, mm. people will start to empathize with yeah, you exactly. and they will be much more forgiving of your, your maybe flaws or your weaknesses in your actions because they can now understand where it's coming from. But if you always you know, present everything's great, I got everything under control, we're doing awesome. And obviously people can tell when that's not the case, especially if they're on your team. It, is, it can create absolutely toxic working environments. No, no. Oh, I agree. Maybe one more question about the, the fake it till make it. Because also, again, in my teaching, I, I put a lot of emphasis on storytelling. Um, because I think, especially when you do a pitch, it's very important. Mm -hmm. um, and then at least, and, and maybe it's good to hear opinion, for instance, I always tell my students, try to make your storytelling as personal as possible. Mm -hmm. Because if you can do that, you're actually showing founder market fit. Yeah. And then I typically get the question, like, yeah, but can we... Can we fake the storytelling, the personal storytelling? So needs, does the personal story needs to be true or can we just come up with a personal story? Mm -hmm. 
And my answer, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion, my answer is always like, I would not invent a story because I think it will never have the authenticity that you want to accomplish. That you maybe make the personal storytelling a bit more exciting than it really was so that you stretch a bit the storytelling. I think that's perfectly okay. Yeah, I, I think the, the key piece is not to, you don't have to necessarily have a, some profound connection to the problem that you're solving. You have to have some kind of understanding of it. But the way I kind of tell founders to bring themselves into it is be the protagonist of the story, mm. right? And that you can be the protagonist of the story at any point. Right. At some point, this problem met you mm. and the stars aligned. Right. If you try to make up some story of like, I'm I'm solving this disease because half my family died of this disease or something like that. <laughs> like, look, in the end, the worst thing you can do is lie. Yeah. And, you know, think about who your audience is. If you're pitching a business, you're either asking for money from a customer or you're asking for money from an investor, or you're asking for time that you're buying from an employee. This is a big investment and a big commitment. And those relationships need to be rooted in trust. Right. And anything that you do that's going to jeopardize that trust, like it's going to come out eventually because these are long-term relationships. This isn't, you know, your Wednesday night Tinder date. This is someone <laughs> you're bringing into the equation that might be by your side for the next 10 years or more. It is important that you treat them like a, a marital spouse and not a one-night hookup because that's the type of relationship that, that you're fostering in yeah. those situations. The one other thing that I try to do that I try to tell founders, and, and I actually talked to your class about this today, which was I would like entrepreneurs to start thinking more like scientists mm. because one of the things that I have such a great respect for scientists and, and researchers is that they seek to prove themselves wrong. You know, I, maybe not all of them, there's some ethical things out there, but when you look at the hard sciences, like they're coming up with hypotheses and if they, they're testing those hypotheses and if they fail, that is, can be just as good of a success as if they achieved it, right? So nah, to be honest, it should yeah. be like that, but it that's not be. the real, reality. Not, not always, not always. But I mean, it's very, very difficult to, you know, flub a chemical reaction, right? Like, sure, there are examples, but I, but I think I feel like, and yeah, you're the scientist in the room, so maybe I'll pose that back to you. <laughs> I think you now have a very romantic view on science. Man, what has happened to me, Drace? How did I go? How did I go the other way? But it should be like that, but unfortunately, and and to be honest, I sometimes also think it's too, it's a too romantic picture. So as some people are the hardcore people that say, look, uh, as a good researcher, you formulate some hypotheses, then you develop a very solid design and you simply test whether the hypothesis makes sense or not. And that's what you write down in your article. Now, to be honest, I have never done research like that. Typically what happens with me is, okay, I have some vague idea about relationships that I want to, that, that I think could be out there. And so it's not that I start without any hypothesis, but I have some ideas. Then I start collecting data. I run the first tests and 90% of the time <laughs> the hypotheses are 
totally different or whatever. But for me, that's exactly the interesting point where I see, okay, I really expect this hypothesis and it's not there. And then, then for me, the, the, the creative part of the science starts, you start thinking, why is this the case? Why is it not what I expected? And then you could think, start thinking about, oh, maybe the relationship is not simply linear, but it's curve linear. Or actually, it might actually be that this relationship depends on other variables. So there is what we would call a moderation effect. Mm -hmm. And then you start, to some extent, and let me use the dirty word, you start playing with your data to see, okay, can I make sense about this surprise that I had? And for me, that's the point where you most of the time creates the most exciting research, that you're trying to make sense why your hypotheses were not confirmed or that they turned out to be different. Mm -hmm. The problem is that in the way we write papers, we are not allowed to write papers like that. So I would really love to write papers like, okay, I start from this, then I collect the data. It didn't turn out to be like I expected. So then I start playing around. And by playing around, I found these interesting findings. What journals expect from us is that we describe our research as a very linear process, which, to be honest, and, and at least in my experience, that's almost never happening. Right. So my feeling is always the template that we use to write papers actually is heavily restricting our ability to adequately describe how research is. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, that's actually quite a frustration. Interesting. See, and, and I wonder if that is a a problem with the system or that's the problem with the method of, of inquiry because like like you said you know you get these um, you get these moderating you know effects or whatnot that you try to explain and to me that still suggests some degree of rigor yeah. right and what I see a lot with practitioners is they find some kind of variable that's problematic in what they're doing in their business model and they bury it yeah. you know and they or they gloss over it and and that ability to kind of bring this rigor to to the approach i think could be very powerful but okay you got me you got me thinking about how much i don't like academia again. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you you converted me for a while Dries, and now you're pushing me back to the dark side no but, but let me clarify I, I fully agree with you that i think the scientific methods has a value for practitioners the problem is a bit that even in science, the scientific method is not always followed. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Good point. All right. Balls in your court. What, yes. made, what made you think this time, Dries? Yeah, actually, it, it, it develops on, on what you, you were telling. Um, I think th this is an important topic and, and that's why it actually made me think. Uh, so uh, I read a paper uh, this week about the topic of entrepreneurial burnout. Mm-hmm. So you were actually already touching upon that. And so the paper I read was a paper published in Small Business Economics called Emotional Demands and Entrepreneurial Burnout, the Role of Autonomy and Job Satisfaction. And so it's published this year uh, by uh, Tahar, Rijep, Malawi, Kraus, Westhead and Jones. So a lot of people involved, apparently. It's a whole basketball team. <laughs> 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 and sorry if I mispronounced the names totally. I have no clue, to be honest. Uh, but so, yeah. So why why was I triggered by this paper? Because it's about entrepreneurial burnout, which I think is a topic on which, and maybe it's just my lack of knowledge, but I didn't see a lot of research about that. 
Now, before we go into the, the, the research, eh, you already touched upon that, that you saw it with uh, the person you were uh, collaborating with. Do you have experience yourself with it? Oh, yes. Oh, big time. Big time. And I, I think I won't get into the story too much because I've talked about this on a lot of podcasts and okay. things like that. But I burned out to a point where I left my own company. Mm. Right. So I... I woke up after three years, you know, 20 kilos heavier, <laughs> smoking cigarettes, <laughs> drinking too much, living out of a suitcase. And, you know, I went from being a, a professional athlete to being at a point where I didn't, I was questioning my longevity yeah. and, and my mental health and my relationship struggled and, you know, my, my self-esteem struggled. So, yeah, I, I would say I could be a case study in burnout, <laughs> you know. Um, interesting that you mentioned autonomy yeah. in that because that, that threw a little bit of a curveball. I'm curious to hear how that comes into play. Yeah, maybe based, based on your own experience, do you think having a perception of autonomy being, and, and in this research, about what does autonomy mean? It's, it's about having a feeling of being in control. So does that increase or decrease the likelihood of a burnout? It's a great question. This is something I talked to your class about today, okay. too, actually. Um, this is my belief about entrepreneurs and mental health and those struggles that come along with it. The entrepreneurial experience is full of so many pitfalls. There's tremendous uncertainty Right? There's unclear goals, there's moving targets, there's crazy highs and, and crazy lows. Um, there's risk, social, financial, all of these other pieces. What I experienced and what I believe is the entrepreneurial journey basically puts your emotions under a magnifying glass. Mm. So people that are super healthy, disciplined, have great time management skills, are emotionally balanced, have strong, healthy relationships, and really operate high function in this world, can really do great in the entrepreneurial journey. Because they have the tools at their disposal already, mm -hmm. and they are afforded more flexibility and autonomy and control that allows them to even further optimize the way they engage with work and the world. Some people are out of balance or unhealthy or don't have these tools at their disposal. And then all of these dynamics come into play. And without the ability to manage those things, it tends to spiral them deeper and deeper into the unhealthy patterns mm. that they have. So that's why you can see, like, you look at some of the leading CEOs in the world, Right. And I, I don't want to just exclude at the very, very top, but you see some of these, you know, top shelf founders and CEOs and they're hyper fit, athletic masters of time management, nutritionally on point. Like they they sleep like babies, like they've just figured out a system of optimizing their life and their performance. Yeah. You also see, you know, founders that commit suicide have substance abuse issues, have severe mental health struggles. So at least from my experience, I see it as like exacerbating one or the other. Whatever you go into that journey, whatever state you're in, it's going to be very, very difficult to add new 
tools to your arsenal to improve your structure of your well-being and your life because there's so many other roles and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think it, it's interesting because if if we look at, at least a bit at the popular press, I think I, I would fully agree with you. I think uh, a lot of the the hardcore entrepreneurs are really in control or at least they try to be in control they're very healthy but if you look at kind of if you look at popular series or how people write about entrepreneurs they're often kind of portrayed as these kind of misfits that are very sensitive to substance abuse and stuff like that whereas at least in my experience that's not how the typical entrepreneur looks like um, so i think there is also kind of misfit there between what entrepreneurs really are and how they are often portrayed in this kind of popular tv series and stuff like that yeah of course i think the if, stop stop watching the media to figure <laughs> out the entrepreneurial experience <laughs> yeah. but let's go back to the research so and actually i think the research has such for me, it was not that surprising. So what did I found as conditions that, that increase the likelihood of going into a burnout? So they found that if you're doing an entrepreneurial job where you're experiencing a lot of emotional demands, then your likelihood of a burnout is higher. If you feel less autonomy, you're also more likely to get into a burnout. And if you feel lower job satisfaction, that also increases the likelihood of burnout. So as such, I think not extremely surprising findings. But then I start thinking about the current, I would say, economic climate, mm -hmm. where I would think if you look today at the average startup that might have raised Series A funding in the past year and is now faced with a different economic climate, I think a lot of founders are facing quite some emotional demands in their company because they might even need to fire some people. Mm -hmm. So their feeling of autonomy or being in control is also maybe challenged because suddenly you're faced with macroeconomic circumstances, increasing interest rates or whatever, <laughs> on which we have limited control, but they might heavily influence uh, your startup activities. And of course, that might also have an impact on your job satisfaction. Yeah. So it, it, it at least feels that all the conditions that also in this research come up as conditions that might increase the level of burnout are really happening at the moment. So that made me think, should we expect a wave of entrepreneurial burnout happening in the next month or the next year? Or, or am I now too pessimistic? Well, I think it's an interesting question, but I think it's important to differentiate between autonomy and control or aspects of control, right? Like one of the, the kind of mental models that I practice all the time, like almost daily, and I try to share with the founders that I work with is kind of breaking up this notion of control into two different boxes um, and using the psychological concepts of the internal locus and the external locus of control, right? The internal locus of control are things that you actually have the ability to affect. External locus are things that are outside of your ability to influence those, mm -hmm. right? When you think of autonomy, right, that's having the ability to affect things internal to you, right? Like you can have all the autonomy in the world, but you can't change the macroeconomic climate, no. right? So I think if you, again, if you have the right tools and you know how to, you, you're framing 
your stressors and your anxieties. I actually, right before we did this podcast, I got a message from one of my portfolio founders and, you know, she's just closing around, getting a first big enterprise client. She's got all of these things happening, clients being slow on paperwork. The investors are waiting for the close of the deal before they make the investment. And she's kind of freaking out a little bit. And I told her, I said, look, you have to I said, you got 10 things you need to do. The first thing you need to do is take those 10 things and put them in one of two boxes, right? The ones that are in the internal box, put all of your energy into them to do them as good as you can. Once you get that done, you know, and hopefully you're able to nudge the external forces into getting the other side done, but you have to be able to take those things that you can't control and park them to the side yeah. and give your energy to the things where you have that you have that feedback loop of effort reward, effort reward, those the sense of, of accomplishment there. So I would say if you're looking at these founders that are like, oh shit, the sky is falling, you know, the the well is drying up, there's no more money, I've got to fire people, like, okay, what do you do in that circumstance? Well you're not gonna change the global economy. You're not gonna change, you know, consumer demand mm. necessarily. But if you've got to fire a bunch of employees, you can certainly handle that with elegance and grace and, and tact, right? You can handle strategically how you're going to downsize your team and operate in a more lean and effective way. And if you put the right energy towards the things that you can control, that can actually be a great mitigating force from the kind of negative self-talk and the stuff that ends up driving you to burnout in the first place. No, 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 I would fully agree because, and, and that's actually what I also try to do in my role as professor. One of my important roles is to mentor PhD students, mm -hmm. which is also a very stressful trajectory, yeah. especially yeah, if you do it as an internal PhD student uh, and you want to continue an academic career. Uh, in the end, getting publications is an important milestone that you need to achieve. But actually, there's a lot, uh, what we call that academically, exogenous uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So you can do everything right and still you can be unlucky and that the results of your research are not that great. They're not that interesting. And although you did everything right, it means that your likelihood to get published in these top level journals will decrease. And so then I often see that my PhD students get stressed out. But then I tell them, look, to be honest, becoming a successful researcher also implies having some luck. And you cannot influence that. So please don't stay awake until 2 a.m. in the morning worrying about whether this paper will get accepted as a journal because you cannot influence it at that point. You need to focus on the things that you can influence. Yeah. And so I, as a supervisor, will not kind of evaluate based on whether this publication was there or not. I will evaluate it on the things that you had under your control uh, so that you design your research in the right way, did you execute the right things? That's what I will evaluate on. And of course, for your career, it's important to get published or not, but to some extent, you don't have full control about that. And so don't be stressed out about it because you cannot control. It will not change anything. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very much aligned with, you know, the same mentality that entrepreneurs should mm -hmm. have, right? Like there are so many... There's so many variables that play into a successful entrepreneur, and the majority of them have nothing to do with the actions of that that entrepreneur themselves. You know, like that's why it, it sounds cliche, but instead of being the best, 
it really does make sense to just be the best version of yourself, mm. right? You know, focus on the the things that you can do and the bigger picture will, will fall into place as it shall, you know. But so many people, that's the thing, is we stress the most about the things we have the least ability to influence. Mm. That's why we stress about it, mm. right? Because we feel out of control and we're just sitting there waiting for something to happen to us, which is hugely anxiety-inducing. You know? mm. it, it's interesting you brought up the burnout topic because... I've had a couple people talk to me about a concept recently that I hadn't heard since episode one of this podcast. And episode one was with Jörg Reinbold. Mm -hmm. And I remember Jörg talking to me, and I didn't quite know what it meant at the time, but he talked about leaving a company after a bore out. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I've heard more and more people kind of talking about, like, the mental health struggle of being having a bore out and mm. just being no longer engaged right and and i think that's a i think you could almost take the burnout phrase out of this topic and plug in plug in the bore out phase because i think this kind of relationship between autonomy and and boredom i think plays a plays a pretty interesting role as well you know and i wonder as I think some people, when you, you deal with dynamics that are out of your control, right, you either, you know, go into a frenzy of trying to fix everything or some people, some people I think grow apathetic too. Yeah. And they're just like, it's helpless. There's nothing I can do about it. I might as well just, you know, let, let the, let the ship steer me yeah. rather than, than steer the ship. So yeah, and then I, there definitely I've not seen a lot of academic research on that topic. But uh, there, there you go, Dries. Here's your, there's <laughs> your next PhD student. <laughs> All right, it's on me for the next one. This is a topic that I've been thinking about for for quite a while, and it's the topic of art. Okay. And the role of technology in art. And what I kind of see as the destruction of art as we know it. And this is a, bit, a topic I've been having, a conversation I've been having with my, my son quite recently because he's studying art history. He's okay. really passionate about this, but he's, you know, somehow I feel like I'm the millennial in the family because I'm all the, the techie guy and he barely uses social media and okay. he's not, a, he thinks NFTs are lame and like, <laughs> and uh so I was kind of exploring this topic a little bit, to be honest, looking for ammunition to argue with him about, <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's what we do. Um, he is my son. Um, and I started kind of digging into this a little more. We were in Amsterdam last month and saw, went to some galleries that had some crazy, valuable, incredible NFTs on display. And I had someone recently gift me my first NFT went through the process of setting up my MetaMask and understanding. And then, of course, the media has been going wild with crypto lately. So I'll maybe start this topic of the destruction of art with a little story. So in July of 2022, so just a few months ago, at an extravagant Miami mansion party, a Mexican businessman named Martin Mubarak 
took a 1944 drawing from one of Frida Kahlo's diaries, removed it from its frame, placed it in a martini glass filled with bright blue rubbing alcohol, and set it on fire. As the drawing burned, an image emerged from digital flames behind a screen, on a screen behind Mubarak. His company, Frida.NFT, would now be selling 10,000 NFTs of this image that he just lit on fire. And as per the company's website, after he did this little gimmick, the drawing was permanently transitioned into the metaverse. So if that drawing was indeed a real Kahlo, which they're still working on, uh, on validating, Mubarak has committed a federal crime in the eyes of the Mexican government, which protects Frida Kahlo's entire body of work. On the other hand, if the drawing was a fake, Mubarak could find himself in trouble for fraud. Uh, although according to Etherscan that tracks this stuff, only four of the 10,000 available NFTs have been sold, okay. totaling less than 11 grand. So this isn't a first time phenomenon. You may have seen it in the news last year, but this art collective called Burnt Banksy lit an original Banksy on fire, then sold it as an NFT. And then a few months ago, uh, a pretty well-known British artist named Damien Hirst mm. sold thousands of his own paintings and gave the buyers the option to either, either have an NFT or the physical copy of the painting. And those that chose the NFT, he destroyed all of the all of the original works. So there's this increasing trend of artists essentially destroying their art and leaving this kind of digital twin in its wake. Of course, meanwhile, <laughs> we have seen what's happened in the Web3 world recently, particularly in this context, the massive loss of wealth from depreciating NFTs. Mm. Um, actually, just a few days ago in the news, they talked about Justin Bieber's purchase of a Bored Ape NFT. He bought it in January of this year, of 2022. He bought it for $1.3 million. Today it is worth $63,000, a 95% depreciation in value. So here's this weird NFT world. In the meantime, there is this fascinating creation of art through digital means. Like I was a relatively early invite into Dali and okay. getting to play with, with that tool, but there's Night Cafe and Deep AI and all these other kind of AI generated art tools. And um, gosh, my Instagram feed is full of those <laughs> things. And it is increasingly impressive the kind of things that are being being created this way. So in one sense, you have this destruction of art. And on another sense, you have this creation of digital art without the artist, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're getting is this massive prospecting and then this massive kind of devaluation and dehumanization of art at the same time. So it kind of led me, instead of looking for answers, I think it kind of posed a, a few questions that I'd be, I'd be interested in. And, and, I, and maybe I can start by asking you, Dries, like, do you see the art world being kind of absconded 
by the, the same prospecting forces that have kind of maybe messed up the crypto world. Like if you look at DeFi and cryptocurrency, it's in its early stages, mm. right? So you're getting this crazy prospecting that going is going on. You can tell this is maybe a ubiquitous technology, but it hasn't stabilized yet. The first movers are kind of the Wild West and the cowboys. I think we see the same thing kind of happening in the art world. But in the art world, we're also losing treasures, like physical creations mm. that are being destroyed and lost forever and being digitized and put in this world of total chaos and mayhem. Like, do you see that this is, does in some way this feel similar to you? For me, actually, what, what is happening in art and the examples that you gave, for me, they are not that surprising because for me, I think a very important function that art has is in society is to provoke and, and to look at societal changes and to maybe even make them more explicit by provoking. And so I think in the past, I think about Picasso that started making cubistic figures, which was just a provocation as a response to societal challenges resulting out of World War I and all that kind of stuff. And I think today you have a generation of artists that is trying to provoke the current societal changes that we are experiencing of transitioning from a physical world to a digital world in a lot of in a lot of contexts so for me i think that's that's the manifestation that these artists are questioning uh, what does digitalization mean for us as a society and then destroying physical paintings and replacing them by digital ones and they use now nfts as a tool to do it is is then this manifestation so for me, it's it's the typical, uh, if you look at, in the history of arts, and I'm, I'm not that much into art history, but I think you have always these cycles where art is used to question fundamental changes. And for me, that's the clear manifestation here. And I love that. I, I believe that art should have very few boundaries. Mm. Um, what I do struggle with is the destruction of historical <laughs> artifacts, right? Frida Kahlo, if she chose to light that thing on fire, you know, or, yeah, I don't even know how I feel if it was her direct descendants. But to me, that was, I'm going to destroy a priceless piece of art, turn it into 10,000 NFTs, and maybe, just maybe, make more money off those NFTs than I would off that original piece of art. To me, that wasn't a uh, an act of creation. That was an act of, of destruction. So, I... I but is an act of destruction, per definition, not art? If it's by the artist, so I mean, is like, so there have been all these protesters recently that have gone into famous museums yeah. and thrown paint and food and stuff on on priceless pieces of art. To me, that's not art; that's vandalism. Now they're sending a message, mm. and I I can even in many cases appreciate the message that they're sending, but at what price? Yeah. Right at a at the price of a, a you know a treasure of antiquity. I'm not sure that's uh, a reasonable a reasonable way to create art it's like saying hey i'm gonna go um i'm gonna go to the roman Colosseum and i'm gonna blow it up right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a statement of art it's a statement it's not terrorism it's a yeah. statement of art you know so i mean these irreparable losses of history and culture i really have trouble with mm -hmm. now the other thing i wanted to ask you is since we're talking about 
you know, um, artists and their, the, their way of kind of creating art, is there art when there is no artist? Because what we're dealing with now, and this is a conversation my son Dylan and I talked about at length, like what is this AI generated art? Can you call it art? And is there art without an artist? Or is this just an amalgamation of data that we then thus choose to interpret as our own, our own art? Or do we have some, you know, like you look at Dali, this is NLP mm-hmm. that's driving it. Like, do we now, because we say, you know, show me a, show me a Shiba Inu dressed in a tutu, and now you get a, you know, impressionist style, and now I get a picture of that, does that make me an artist? I would say yes. Because I'm, I'm also experimenting a bit with uh, a stable diffusion, which is just another uh, algorithm. And to be honest, I suck in it. <laughs> so I try to make these kind of nice pictures and I suck in it. Why? Because I don't have the skill to give it the accurate instructions. So but I see, I, I know. I also look at uh, the posts on Twitter and stuff like that, what is happening. And, and I see that some people seem to be very skilled in writing the right instructions to make the AI do what, what they want it to do. And for me, that's, that's then the new way of being an artist. It's maybe not picking up the, the pencil and drawing a figure, but it's putting on your keyboard the right instruction to make something unique that is using input from others. But still you're making for me an artistic exercise. I can buy that, I can buy it. I just, you know, if you know how to leverage the AI, you know, is, the, is that a tool brush? Yeah, is that like a paintbrush? Or is that like a mathematical equation? And maybe math can be perceived as art as well. It's just kind of skill. And I think it's a skill where you need creativity. So for me, quickly, it comes into art. So last question. Do you think, to me, it feels like a lot of chaos right now. It (laughs) seems like the Wild West on all sides, whether it's the destruction of art, the creation of NFTs or the, the AI. Like, what do you think the normalization of these new technologies look like? Will this just become ubiquitous and now we will have, you know, AIs in a hundred years, there will be AI art in museums next to Warhols and Dalis and Picassos? Or, you know, will this become part of the mainstream like many crypto DeFi advocates believe that, you know, digital currencies will become the, the ubiquitous and the mainstream? Or do you think this is just a, uh, a fun little, you know, play toy that will lose its novelty over time? No, I think we opened a box of Pandora that we can no longer close. Mm-hmm. And, and just to, to give you an example, it, it's a bit related. I'm, I'm experimenting with uh, open AI playgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the, it uses the GPT-3 mm-hmm. of uh, open AI. And so it's, it's amazing what you can do. And so, and I show it now always in my classes. So you can just tell uh, GPT-3, you go to the website and you say, write me a paragraph about whatever, you know, digital business models in the health industry. And you press enter and it starts writing. 
and the texts make a lot of sense. And so I already started talking with our university, what will we do about this? Because I'm sure that in the next year, if I give assignments to students, they will start using OpenAI to write their assignments. Mm -hmm. And our plagiarism software that you typically use to identify fraud will not capture it because the AI is writing unique text. So it's not plagiarism. It's not copy-paste. You're instructing the AI to write unique text. So will we actually see this as fraud or will we see this as acceptable use of technology? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I recently saw these anti-plagiarism AI tools where you could plagiarize something, run it through this software, yeah. <laughs> and it'll make sure it never gets picked up by, yeah. you know, the plagiarization trackers, yeah. right? And like, I imagine in your lifetime as a professor, there's going to be full dissertations that can be written like this. I mean, you can now, you can have incredible content creation. You know, you could literally run a, a blog that you never write a line of text in, you know? Yeah. And it's finding the content, it's doing the research. Yeah, but maybe that's okay. Maybe our, what writing becomes, and I, I'm not talking about in 10 years, maybe in three years, mm -hmm. what writing becomes is giving instructions to an AI system about what it should write. Right. Maybe that's what writing becomes, is just writing instructions yeah. in a creative way. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, like, uh, not very long ago, architects that designed houses would literally work on paper mm -hmm. with a compass and a pencil. And now, you know, and then there was a movement into into AutoCAD, and now there's tools that will design it with the right structural integrity for you. And like, does it make them any less of an architect? I would say no. Mm -hmm. They're just leveraging tools to do it at faster scale and and more effectively. So. No. Where do you draw the line? No, and, and I have to say, when I start using this, this OpenAI playground, I, I don't know, but I have I had some rare moments in my life that you use a new technology and that you immediately understand, okay, this is changing everything. I, I remember the first time that you typed in a search string on Google, you were thinking, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> you know? And I now really had the same feeling. Like if you see in front of you the AI writing a perfect text based on an instruction, it was like, oh my God, what, what is this doing? And take into account, I, I saw it today on Twitter. So GPT-3 is based on 12 billion parameters. Mm -hmm. At least the rumor is that in six months, GPT-4 will come out, which is based on 100 trillion parameters. So if this can be done with GPT-3 based on 12 billion parameters, what will be GPT-4 with 100 trillion parameters? Oh my goodness. Wow, that is, so, those are incomprehensible numbers too. Wow. You know, there's all this kind of fear-mongering stuff about the robots and the AI taking over the world, right? <laughs> that they're going to end up being smarter than us yeah. and they're just going to be able to control us. Maybe the reality is, is they're not going to get, they're going to make us dumber, right? Because we're going to have to use less kind of lateral thinking and creative processes, all of these things that make us human, that make us not a machine. Like we're exercising less and less along the way. Now, I, to be honest, I don't know, because you could also say in the end that will 
always be about how can you differentiate yourself from other individuals. And so today you can differentiate yourself by writing unique text or making a unique painting. And so maybe in five years we will differentiate ourselves by writing really unique instructions that nobody else can write. So you can still differentiate yourself and that will still require cognitive capabilities. They are different. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you and I come from about the same time frame. <laughs> and like, time. <laughs> let's just be, let, I think you and I can agree on one thing, like the ability of people to write is in decline. Yeah. Writing skills are in pretty steep decline. I mean, the, and don't get me wrong, this isn't universal. I know some great writers that are, are young people, but I think the the act and the process of writing and arguably more importantly the act and the process of reading is in decline and as a result people don't write as well as they as they used to so here is one of these kind of fundamental tools that make us uniquely human but we're not practicing it okay but so i have this fight a lot with my wife mm. that is then complaining about her son not writing very well and then I say, yeah, but does it matter? Because he can write shitty, but word will tell him what he needs to correct. Depends, right? If you're writing, filling out a form, sure. What if you want to write a love letter? Yeah. You know, again, if you want to, if you want to use language to be expressive and unique, yeah, yeah, that requires yeah. particular tools, right? If you're trying to pump out information in the most effective way as possible. No, but there I fully agree with you. But so for me, it's the, the differentiating factor is no longer the technical way of writing. So whether you write everything grammatically correct from the first time doesn't matter because the software will pick it up and it will give you suggestions how to improve it. The differentiating factor becomes, are you able to really tell a nice story? Yeah. But that's on a different level, I would say. That's true. Yeah. 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 But unfortunately now no one can spell the difference between your and your anymore. So <laughs> screw you if you can't figure that one out. All right, man. All right. That was a little heavy. Let's finish this on a light note. Dries, this is one I, I, you gave me a one sentence primer that said, can I say it? Yes. It said, Dries's thing that made him laugh my first experiences with TikTok. And so many thoughts raced through my head when I read that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but it gave me a chuckle, Dries. So you're starting off on a good note. Tell, tell me about your first experiences with TikTok. Yeah, so of course we all heard a lot, I think in the past year or even two years about TikTok. And until now I always resisted to enter this because I also heard that it can become very addictive. Um, but then actually, uh, for one of the podcasts we recently uh, taped with, with uh, Annika from Ampion, so in the conversation, as she was telling that for them, TikTok is just their most important channel to get traction. Mm -hmm. And I was really stunned by that. It's like a, a platform that tries to connect employees and employers. Is it really now already the case that TikTok is the most important kind of marketing channel? So I was really a bit kind of surprised by that. So I said, okay, I now, I now need to open the box of Pandora and, and go on TikTok. So I, 
I started, uh, downloaded it, and I, I think you have to give your age and some some information, and then uh, the feed started happening. And actually, initially, I was quite pleasantly surprised. So I got some small TikTok movies about coding in Python, which is something that really interests me. So I thought, okay, this algorithm is going in the right direction. But then suddenly, after and after a few days, I increasingly got... And I have to say it like this, uh, bikini girls, 18-year-olds mm. in my TikTok feed, <laughs> which was not, you know, <laughs> what, what I was looking for. But then actually the, the more I tried to swipe them away, the more my feed got with bikini girls, 18-year-olds. So I had the feeling that the algorithm was telling me, you might pretend that you don't like it, but we know you actually like bikini girls that are 18 years old and we will continue feeding you with bikini girls that are 18 years old, whether or not you swipe them away. And so I have to say in a very limited number of days, I had the feeling that TikTok was completely going out of hand. <laughs> and so I had the feeling that it was saying a 50-year-old guy needs to like bikini girls that are 18 years old, whether or not you swipe them away or not. And so in the end, to be honest, I decided to deinstall the app because I was like, what I'm getting now in my feet, it's, it's, I feel quite uncomfortable about it. <laughs> so at the same time, that made me wonder, is everybody having the same experience, which I think is a bit depressing? And, and why is this happening that the algorithm, despite me trying to push it in a very different direction, so I really started typing in the most boring search term to try to indicate to the algorithm, look, I really don't want to see 18-year-old bikini girls on the feet, and still it happens. So in the end, I gave up and deinstalled the app, and I say, look, this is not for me at the moment because this is not the content that I wanted. That's probably good for both your career and your marriage. <laughs> So I, I don't want to turn this quite funny story into something serious, but I actually saw an interview a while ago. Um, I think it was Joe Rogan that did it, but they were deconstructing TikTok. Mm. And w the one insight that just blew my mind is that TikTok is, you know, it's based out of China, right? And it's the largest app in China now, too. And if you're a young person scrolling TikTok in China, it's almost all educational content. Mm. History, science lessons, <laughs> motivation to do well in school. Yet outside of the U.S. and in the Western world, it is mind-numbing dances, sex, stupid the kind of stuff, the reason you wanted to delete it, right? Mm. So, you know, I don't know if this is conspiracy or not, but some people are at least are suggesting that that's very, very deliberate, yeah. and, right? They're using the kind of addictive, endless scrolling kind of mechanics of this thing in China to positively influence a young generation while in the enemy states essentially trying to dumb down the next generation and using it as kind of a tool of long-term social warfare. No. no, and I think, at least in my experience, it was quite quite blunt. And I, But I think in reality, they might not do it in a very blunt way. I think the most dangerous way is that they just tweak the algorithm a bit to make a difference and then the difference will kind of reinforce itself. So you end up in a, in a situation where 
people in China have a very different TikTok experience than people in the rest of the world, just by tweaks in the algorithm that make it yeah quite an, uh, a dangerous tool, I would say. It, I, I find it like, I, I don't use TikTok. I have gone through the same experience as you and, and downloaded it and put in some keywords, never set up an account. And it, very quickly, it kind of devolved into the same kind of thing. But I also see similar dynamics on like YouTube and Instagram that I, I do use more more regularly. And, and definitely on Instagram, the uh, I sometimes feel like I have a feed of boobies. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, by, and I think part of it is because I do look at some fitness stuff. Yeah. But you would think I would just get like muscular guys, which would also be interesting. <laughs> but but I still get more boobies than I get muscular guys. But the one thing that I have noticed is I actually like I like I like watching Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but I love his interviews. He brings on some fascinating people. And sometimes I'll watch like literally three hours of these things. But because I have watched a bit of Joe Rogan, I now get these Ben Shapiro's and this guy that's always asking like, what is a woman? And these basic like pretty hard right wing kind of sometimes conspiracy, but generally kind of right wing pundits. Mm. Now that is not my political ethos at all. And frankly, I've watched enough Joe Rogan to know that he's a skeptic, but he voted for Bernie Sanders. He's not like a crazy right wing guy either. However, because the media sometimes portrays him as a right wing guy, yeah. I think the algorithms connect him to Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and these other guys in the world. So because I watch Rogan, I get, and I'm like, I'm pretty left wing, but my feed looks like I'm a right wing guy. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah, just, so I get a bunch through my company. I get a lot of kind of spam people offering different services and whatnot. And I've been getting these a couple companies recently that are like, Hey, you know, we're content creators and we can do blogs and we can do videos and stuff for the freedom loving patriotic right wing <laughs> community. And it's like, Hey, Mr. McGowan, you know, we'd love to talk to you about, you know, working, supporting your venture studio and pr promoting freedom and patriotism. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like who the fuck turned me into Ronald Reagan? What kind of <laughs> algorithm is doing this to me? I was like, I'm still a closet socialist and now I'm getting this crazy stuff. But, you know, these algorithms aren't perfect. Right. And sometimes they'll pick up on one trend. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Right. Like the binary nature of, oh, Garrett watches a Joe Rogan video. So we should give him Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and these other right wing people. But what they're not understanding is the context of it. Mm. Right. They're not listening to the content. Right. Oh, it was Joe Rogan with Andrew Huberman talking about like, you know, neuroscience. Right. It wasn't like, you know, Joe Rogan talking with whatever, COVID deniers or, or something like that. So a lot of the nuance gets lost yeah. and somehow eventually these algorithms put you in a box yeah. and it's really, really fucking hard to get out of that box. No, although for my experience, for instance, with Twitter and, and also YouTube a bit is when, when I look at my Twitter feed and it becomes a bit too left wing because 
uh, I would also more associate with left wing. But if I start to get feeling, okay, now it becomes a bit too woke, too left wing, then sometimes I start on purpose following some more right wing people to push the, 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 the algorithm in a different direction. Uh, so then you could kind of, for instance, the, the guys from the All In podcast, if you follow them, then, then suddenly some more right wing stuff enters into your Twitter. So sometimes like with Twitter, I have a feeling that you at least can shape a bit the algorithm in a certain direction. But so with TikTok, I completely failed in steering it into a certain direction. It simply said to me, you like 18 year old girls in a bikini and don't pretend that you like something else. <laughs> Teresa, remember we're recording. So when you say things like you like 18 year old girls in bikinis, that is context. a perfect <laughs> little <laughs> clip that puts you right back in that box, man. <laughs> Oh, damn. I, I don't know if the world is getting wonky or we're just getting old, man. <laughs> All right. One last thing. I think it's fun. I thought it was funny. Maybe people don't think it's funny. But um, what I want to talk about is what I kind of think of. There's this this old adage from like one flew over the cuckoo's nest when the inmates take over the asylum. And I'm sure many people, you included, have recently heard about this crazy downfall of the fourth largest uh, crypto exchange in the world, FTX. So if, for those of you that don't know, FTX was one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. It recently experienced a total collapse with billions and billions of dollars in wealth being lost in, in a matter of days. I think one point it was at like a 35 billion market cap. Um, this is a company that's founded by uh, a guy in his early 20s. He became the youngest billionaire in the world at 23, something along, along those lines. Um, but, you know, rather than spending a whole lot of time unpacking all that happened in this FTX collapse, you can find that all over the interweb right now. And I think it's kind of unfolding as it goes. What I want to share with you is what uh, the, uh, Alex Hearn, who's the tech editor of The Guardian, called the corporate equivalent of three children in a trench coat pretending to be a fully grown man. <laughs> So this story boils down to FTX's founder and CEO, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, and his inner circles, kind of escapades, these early 20-somethings with unlimited cash, absolutely no controls, and frankly, a pretty deep taste for unencumbered debauchery. <laughs> that nice combination undoubtedly played a role in the unraveling of one of the fastest accruals of wealth in modern history. So Bankman-Fried, um, his sometimes on-again, off-again girlfriend, her name is Caroline Ellison, she's the CEO of Alameda, which is FTX's venture capital arm. These were pretty deeply intertwined. So Ellison, Bankman-Fried, and eight other people lived in a luxury penthouse in the Bahamas. They were in the Bahamas. They relocated the company there for uh, regulatory purposes. And it is in this top floor apartment in the Bahamas that is kind of ground zero for all of the madness that likely led to FTX's demise and crumble. And this is the part that I thought was so funny. So um, a little while ago, Bankman-Fried stepped down as CEO. The investors put 
someone more rational in place as a replacement CEO, this gentleman named John Ray III. He tried to rescue the company in its last weeks um, and realizing that wasn't going to happen, uh, filed for insolvency. Um, and he kind of put out a statement and a report on this. And his quote from that said, from compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. So he walked into that and said, what the fuck is going on? I've never seen anything like this before. So what did he see? What, what happened? In short, a bunch of these young kids were overcome by sex, drugs, and rock and roll um, with the unencumbered resources of tech billionaires. So what does this mean? Where And how do you find out? Well, we went to Twitter and Tumblr because these billionaire kids um, that were totally out of control decided to tweet and and blog about their experiences. So I thought I'd share a couple with you because I thought they were just hysterical. So Caroline Ellison, um, last year, one of her tweets, nothing like regular amphetamine use to make you appreciate how dumb a lot of normal, non-medicated human experiences. <laughs> in, in her Tumblr post, she wrote about her understanding of traditional finance as it's very unlikely you lose all your money. She talked about her ideal man controlling most world, major world governments and having sufficient strength to physically overpower you. And her exploration of polyamory. When I first started my foray into poly, I thought, I thought of it as a radical break from my trad past. But TBH, I've come to decide the only acceptable style of poly is best characterized as something like imperial Chinese harem. None of this non-hierarchical bullshit. Everyone should have a ranking of their partners. People should know where they fall on this ranking, and there should be vicious power struggles within the ranks. Hmm. Her other, and then Sam Bankman-Fried, in a similar vein, tweeted, A, stimulants when you wake up, sleeping pills if you need them when you sleep. B, be mindful of where your headspace is. I often nap in the office so that my mind doesn't leave work mode between shifts. In his tweets, further tweets, Bankman Freed's Twitter photo showed, showed the stimulant patch that Sam preferred, MSOM, a drug normally used to treat depression for Parkinson's patients, but used off-label for its alertness and focus benefits. Commenters on this tweet pointed out that MSAM, which is called selegaline, uh, has fatal effects if eaten with meat products. They also point out that it's linked to impulse control disorders such as pathological gambling and hypersexuality. Perhaps this could explain Sam's behavior. So apparently, the group of 10 residents of this Bahamas apartment were all high on drugs competing for sexual engagement with one another while grossly mismanaging billions of dollars. They even had an in-house resident psychiatrist that apparently was sent to them by Sequoia, 
the VC fund to prescribe them their medications while giving them leadership coaching, quote unquote. Now, this group certainly wouldn't be the first time that a group of 20-somethings were getting high and, and having a lot of sex. But how often does something like this happen with a collection of the world's youngest billionaires? So I was just thinking about it, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, of that famous quote. I think it's like a meme I've seen on T-shirts that says, don't do drugs, kids. There's a time and place for everything. It's called college. <laughs> not, not when you're building multi-billion dollar companies. Um, the other one I thought of was, uh, I saw it a while ago online, and it said, we congratulate drugs for winning the war on drugs. <laughs> but, but here we have... This incredible invention, you know, the kid was MIT, obviously a, a super genius of a young entrepreneur and engineer. And, you know, I don't know how to put this any other way without sounding disparaging, but he was kind of a nerdy guy, probably a bit socially awkward. Apparently, while this was falling, while the whole thing was crumbling, he was playing World of Warcraft for hours. Yeah, League of it. Legends. League of Legends, that's what it was, yeah. And, like, so you've got... You know, and I think we see more and more of these situations, especially in the tech world, where people that maybe have not had a rich social fabric in their life may have been on the outside, you know, not participating in many of the kind of coming of age experiences that young people have. They build something transformative. They accrue crazy amounts of wealth. They finally have the opportunity to whether attract, you know, sexual partners or, or create circles of friends or community have because of their wealth, have no checks or balances. You know, they get surrounded by yes people that kind of just do their bidding. And that can obviously have a pretty big impact on an individual. But here's a situation where it had an impact on 30 billion individuals yeah. you know so is this do you think this is a trend we're going to these are this is a story that's going to become increasingly common or is this does this just seem like a, a crazy one-off to you i think it just happens once in a while not that you have this total craziness and i think it, it's maybe the ultimate manifestation of what we have seen in 2021 where i think there was a lot of irrationality in the market and this might be the might the ultimate manifestation of that. Um, but maybe because I think in the past episodes, we have often talked about the Acquired podcast. And so they actually did an interview with him, I think two years ago or something like that. And I listened to it. I remember I listened to it in the summer. And at that point, the story sounded very rational. So... It's now, of course, always looking back and, and going into their tweets and stuff like that. It can look like the most crazy stuff. But at that point, I think even if I listen to the podcast, I could not anticipate this craziness. I, I was not really enthusiastic of going into FTX because the word leverage and crypto together for me. <laughs> crypto is already risky. And then if you start leverage your crypto, I think that's, that's really casino uh, play. So in that way, I was not interested in it. Uh, but, but if you at that point, listen to it, it sounded all very rational. Um, so that's, that's always intrigues me. That's, at a certain point, it collapses and it becomes very clear what went wrong. But that before, 
a lot of reputational actors were fully into it. That's for me always the surprising thing. Yeah, what's interesting to me is just kind of hearing what the stories that are coming out of it. You know, mm -hmm. right now when I'm like some of the things I told you about, the picture that's being painted is almost like this Lord of the Flies experience, right? Where a bunch of young people are stranded on an island, and actually, you know, they this psychiatrist that that Sequoia sent them um, kind of talked about that and said that, um, hey, you know, like they were very lonely, they were stuck, you know, they didn't have a social community, they're on this little island, there wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, a, a lot, so they kind of went insular in this, in this place. Obviously, they had the resources and the drugs. But, you know, there's this picture of like, I mean, first of all, I don't think, it's not my choice, but polyamory is probably not a clear indicator of success or failure as an entrepreneur. So, you know, I think it's a nice tagline and, and headline, especially when some kooky girl says she's into whatever type, you know, it's like, oh, that's interesting that somebody would say that in a public domain. But then you think about the drug side too, right? Like, I think it's common knowledge that Elon Musk is taking a shitload of Adderall or whatever it might be to, you know, I think Donald Trump is another one of those examples that there's so much evidence that this guy's like popping pills to function. And I think there's a long history of people using stimulants. I mean, everything from coffee to cocaine and depending on what the era was and could not, I'm not advocating for it. I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying that I think it's common. Mm. It's a relatively common practice. So here we got a bunch of young kids that were living a weird alternative lifestyle, perhaps. There was an absolute catastrophic collapse. I think the big question to me is like, are we pointing the fingers at something unethical that happened? Are we blaming the sex, drugs, and rock and roll for the failure of FTX? Or is this just a funny kind of sidebar to the more significant situation that's at play here. But I think what's going to be interesting is how this all unfolds, mm. right? Like, is there something that fundamentally unethical? You know, now there was like five billion left in the accounts right at the end, and then there was a hack, right? And a bunch of money got no. kind of taken out, and they're, of course, pointing the fingers. And then they thought he, Freed had run off to Argentina, but he hadn't, you know? So there's all this speculation. Everyone's trying to, like find a, a, a scapegoat or a fall guy for essentially what happened. And I found it funny that, you know, they were di people are diving in. The Guardian is diving in so deeply into the sexual predications and drug habits of this company. But is that really you know, fundamentally the cause of... Yeah, for me, it, it's that, that's, that point of story is more a distraction. I think the more fundamental questions are like, how is it possible that the most high reputation VC companies were investing in that company, whereas apparently there was even not a balance sheet, mm -hmm. right. which should be the first step in a due diligence, not that you take a look at the balance sheet. Yeah. So apparently high, all these high reputation VCs have put a shitload of money in this company without asking for a balance sheet. I think these are the important questions that we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, particularly in light of, you know, just the other day, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, there were some pretty high reputation people from big VCs to Oprah and Obama, you know, holding this woman up high and she raised hundreds of millions without 
real due diligence. And if I would be an LP of Sequoia being responsible for a pension fund of people in Canada and I hear these stories, I think I'm not that concerned about the drug stories of these people in Bahama. I'm concerned about how the hell did Sequoia decide to put some of my money in this company and why the hell am I paying a management fee to Sequoia if this, if this can happen? You know, I think these are the fundamental questions and I'm a bit surprised that these questions are not that raised that much at the moment in the press. On, you know, pointing the fingers at the enablers as well. Yeah, Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because if you think of a VC firm, like they're literally expected to have 75% of their investments go bunk, right? They're just, as long as that top 20, 25% is a success and the fund is netting their 40% IRR or whatever, all the, yeah. LP, all the LPs are happy, right? Regardless of how the other ones crash and burn. Yeah, okay. And, and there is, of course, at the other side of the story, at least there are the rumors that Sequoia might have actually made a lot of money out of FTX because they might have received these tokens and have been able to sell them at the high point of the, the token mania. Um, so maybe they have lost the equity investment, but they might have actually made a lot of money by selling the, the FTT tokens. Mm-hmm. But the, the interesting thing is that they don't have to disclose that. And that doesn't go back to the LPs of the fund, necessarily. Yeah, that's another question. Where is that money going to? So did it, did it go to Sequoia, the tokens? Did they sell them? And what did happen with the sold tokens? And how will we ever find out? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, this might be another episode coming up here. Well, damagery is something that was supposed to be a chuckle turned into something deep and sinister once again, but, and here we are again. We, we did another one. Um, I liked it. There's some interesting, interesting topics. I think I'll say one thing. I know I'm looking forward to doing the next one, but with all the crazy shit that's going on in the world, it's getting increasingly difficult to choose what I want to talk about because <laughs> there's like so much madness going on out there. And I think we're you know, maybe it's this economic shift. Maybe it is all of these new technologies arising. But um, there are some fascinating, I think, ethical, ethical conundrums, psychological challenges, like new visibility into behaviors that you know we haven't seen before. And we're starting to take a look at innovation and entrepreneurship in through completely different lenses with different degrees of insights. And we're seeing catastrophic successes and failures in the process. So. No, and I think it, it's important to also openly talk about it. Yeah, Like, look, I used this example of my TikTok experiences as a kind of joke, but at the same time, I'm a bit concerned. Like, if I had this negative experience, why am I not hearing a lot of other people talking about that? Because... I would be surprised that I'm the only one having that negative experience with TikTok. But I don't hear it that much. And that, that worries me to some extent. So, Well, Dries, maybe a lot of 40-something guys don't want to talk about the boobies they see on their social media. This is the first time I've said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of like shame and fear that comes along with those kinds of things. Like even if you have literally, you're trying to fight it and you're trying to avoid it, that somehow these omnipotent algorithms are basically saying, oh no, 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 oh no, Dries, you actually do want to see that, mm-hmm. right? And that makes you go, hang on a second. It's like the self-reporting on the 
the personality traits. It's like, do I have to start questioning myself? Like, does the AI know something that I don't? Do I want anyone to know that the AI thinks that about me? No. You know, um, because I think the the crazy thing is sometimes those algorithms get it right. You know, like how often or like I've had times I've been like talking to someone like, oh, you know, it'd be really great to, you know, I really want to go visit this place. And next thing I know, boom, here it is on my feed. Like I didn't search for it, but somehow it knew, you know, it's interesting what they're doing now is how they're connecting the dots between people. So if someone else that you're close to searches for something and they know you have a connection with them, they're going to correlate their interests with yours. And, you know, sometimes you go, holy crap, I was looking for that or I was thinking about that before I ever looked it up. But at the same time, I'm also still sometimes surprised about the stupidity. For instance, if I open Spotify, it it feels that Spotify still thinks that I'm stuck in the 90s. (laughs) It's like, please give me some recommendations of more recent music. Don't get me stuck into the 90s, you know. It's only because, Dries, it knows your birthday. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but... (laughs) Or maybe it's because it it knows you know me and I'm listening (laughs) to that crap. That was my gym workout music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like you said, when GPT-4 comes out, like... Now we're talking about hundreds of trillions. What do, what do we count in the world in, in those orders of magnitude at this point, other than atoms and data? Yeah. You know, like that is, if we can start analyzing data at that level and actioning data at that level, you know, it might start telling you things that you want before you know you even want them with accuracy. So stay tuned on that uh, somewhat frightening note. Thanks for joining today. Great to see you in Dusseldorf again, Dries. Um, I look forward to, after a little extended holiday, I look forward to doing this again with you soon. Great to do it. Well, folks, hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, Stay tuned next week for, I think I'll spare you who that next guest will be, but we've got some really great uh, founders on the horizon that are teed up uh, to be in your inboxes soon. And as usual, if you like the episode, be sure to like, subscribe, or give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming service. This takes the smile.